1: For who knows what is good for a person in life during the few and meaningless days they pass through like a shadow? Who can tell them what will happen under the sun after they are gone? A good name is better than fine perfume and the day of death better than the day of birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. For death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. Frustration is better than laughter because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. It is better to heed the rebuke of a wise person than to listen to the song of fools. Like the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools. This too is meaningless. Extortion turns a wise person into a fool, and a bribe corrupts the heart. The end of a matter is better than its beginning, and patience is better than pride. Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. Do not say, Why were the old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask such questions. Wisdom, like an inheritance, is a good thing and benefits those who see the sun. Wisdom is a shelter as money is a shelter. But the advantage of knowledge is this wisdom preserves those who have it. Consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? When times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, no one can discover anything about their future. In this meaningless life of mine, I have seen both of these. The righteous perishing in their righteousness and the wicked living long in their wickedness. Do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? Do not be over-wicked and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? It is good to grasp the one and not to let go of the other. Whoever fears God will avoid all extremes. Wisdom makes one wise person more powerful than ten rulers in a city. Indeed, there is no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins. Do not pay attention to every word people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you. For you know in your heart that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I tested by wisdom, and I said, I am determined to be wise, but this was beyond me. Whatever exists is far off and and most profound. Who can discover it? So I turned my mind to understanding, to investigate and to search out wisdom and the scheme of things, and to understand the stupidity of wickedness and the madness of folly. I find more bitter than death the woman who is a snare, whose heart is a trap, and whose hands are chains. The man who pleases God will escape her, but the sinner she will ensnare. Look, says the teacher, this is what I have discovered, adding one thing to another to discover the scheme of things. While I was still searching, but not, excuse me, but not finding, I found one upright man among a thousand, but not one upright woman among them all. This only have I found: God created mankind upright, but they have gone in search of many schemes. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Well, that's a fun passage. Uh, My name's Mike, I'm one of the pastors here. If you are new here tonight, uh, online or in person, it is great to have you with us. Um, I'm one of the pastors and it's my privilege to kind of get us over the halfway point through Ecclesiastes and uh, to really wrestle with this challenging, provocative and, God willing, um, really helpful passage But because the teacher in Ecclesiastes seems to struggle with um, a sense of humour, I thought I'd start off our sermon today just thinking into the vibes of 2020, and I've been loving these memes on Facebook and uh, on the net, Um, if 2020 were. If 2020 was a plate of nachos, you would get like sayo biscuits and some dirty square cheese, that would not be a pleasant meal, but that's kind of, that's what we get now. One of my favourites, if 2020 was a hula hoop, (laughs) how... And definitely my favorite on the net right now is this one, if 2020 was a scented candle. (laughs) Yes. It it kind of resonates, right? Like that's 2020. All right, now that we've got the funnies out of the way, back to Ecclesiastes. Um, Now we've been working our way through Ecclesiastes, and if you are new among us, um, then this, this might feel like a really strange thing, an unexpected thing to read from the scriptures. We've been listening to this ancient teacher, a king as it were who has used his, uh, his insight, his intellect, his resources to, to examine wisdom in this broken world, to find meaning. And he says that, the, that life is, is meaningless. Not that meaning doesn't exist, but that it keeps, it keeps slipping through his hands as though he were chasing after the wind. And as we look at this passage tonight, we find a lot of those same themes and as a result, we're going to sort of, we're going to take Ecclesiastes 7 and use it as a launch pad to explore a particular question. It's a question that's been on my mind this year, and I'm, I would like it to be on yours as well, and it's simply this, despite 2020, why am I still a Christian? So in light of all that we've, we've kind of wrestled with this year, in light of all that's happening in your world, why, despite 2020, are you still following Jesus if you're a believer? If you're not yet a believer, I'm hoping this is an opportunity to look in and ask the question, why, why might I follow Jesus? But that's the question we're going to use to, um, to, to focus in our exploration of chapter 7. I'm not going to get to everything, it's a long passage and there's some Q&A time at the end if, if I've missed something. And indeed there are some corkers there that I'm not going to touch on in the sermon, you're welcome to ask about. But that's the question we're going to use to, kind of, uh, to, to drive us through. And we start our exploration on, uh, on, on following God, with the end of chapter 6, where the teacher says, "'For who knows what is good for a person in life during the few and meaningless days they pass through like a shadow? Who can tell them what will happen under the sun after they are gone?' It's a very downbeat question, and really he's setting up, what is the good life?' Now, that's, a, that's in a kind of an eternal human kind of question. What is the good life? And so chapter 7 begins kind of unpacking some of that. And we get this kind of this better than language pointing towards what, what is better. And we start off, it seems pretty straightforward. A good name is better than perfume. That makes perfect sense, right? Because we know that a reputation stinks. <laughs> and so it's better to have a good name, a good reputation, than to smell nice with perfume. Um, that makes sense? Then we keep reading. Uh, and we read, the day of death is better than the day of birth. And it's just completely lost us. Uh, It sounded proverbial, and then we come across all these strange better thans, better than to be in the house of mourning, better frustration. What do you make of that? What is this ancient teacher trying to teach us? I wonder if, if we took, for instance, better to be in the house of mourning, better to be a funeral, perhaps, As strange as that sounds, I wonder if the teacher is trying to help us think about one thing. For instance, instance, imagine you are at a funeral, and some of us have unfortunately been in that position this year, um, and that adds grief upon grief in the dramas of this year, but imagine being at a funeral, and someone says, how are you? Can you say, good thanks, (laughs) or or, I'm busy? They're the two favourites, right? We love saying those answers to people's question of how are you. You can't say either of those, can you, at a funeral? Why not? Because they are offensively disconnected with the moment. I think one of the things the teacher here is trying to help us see is facing the brutal facts of reality. He's not glossing over with frivolities, you know, that, that life is, is great, you make the best of you, you can and it will go well for you. He just wants us to kind of dig into the brutal facts of this world. It's interesting, this this idea of kind of facing the brutal facts is actually ripped straight out of a leadership book by Jim Collins, uh, written a while back. Uh, And he's talking about just building a healthy organisation. You can't build a healthy organisation on anything other than the brutal facts, the harsh realities. Anything else beyond that is is just exposed to risk and failure. It's the same with the good life. You cannot build a good life on anything other than, than, than the harsh reality, whether you like it or not. You've got to face it. But the second thing I think the teacher here is helping us think about is, is the limits of classical wisdom. Now we kind of we, we want to read uh, it is better to live than to die. We want to read maybe uh, if you work hard, the laborer is rewarded. I mean that's kind of that's classical wisdom. But what we what we're seeing in this in this in this wise teacher's search for wisdom is that it doesn't play out like a formula. You can't just go to the self-help section, punch out the first 10 top tips on the better life, on how to live the wise life, and just pop out the other side of that, all happy, shiny, squeaky. 2020 has said no to that. The teacher here is exposing that evil, chance, and death eats away at the good life, whether you're being wise or not. There is a limit here to classical wisdom. Even as we get down to, say, verse 11, and keep the Bibles open on your phone, or if, you, if you've got your own, that's great, um, hold me accountable to the Scriptures, you know. Uh, verse 11, uh, wisdom, like an inheritance, is a good thing and benefits those who see the sun. Wisdom is a shelter, as money is a shelter, but the advantage of knowledge is this, wisdom preserves those who have it. Wisdom is a good thing, he's never denying that. But even in this section, it's not all kind of upbeat and great about wisdom, When he says uh, wisdom is like those who see the sun, we're triggered by thinking back about Ecclesiastes where the teacher says there is nothing new under the sun and everything under the sun is meaningless, vexatious, uh, futile, can't grab it. And even when he compares wisdom to being like money as a shelter that might protect us, we just heard last week that, that money, it corrupts us, we can't enjoy it as much as we would like. He's bringing wisdom down into the gritty reality of this world and it's messy, it doesn't play out like we'd like, and for everyone in pursuit of fulfilling the good life project, they're not just bumps in the road that you've got to practice good resilience and getting over, it's entirely flawed. And so he says, well he quotes people asking the question, why were the old days better than this? Why was 2019 so much better than 2020? And in classic postmodern form, verse 10, he says, it's best not to ask the big questions. <laughs> so why am I still a Christian? And I know you want me to say, because God gives me meaning, just to kind of give you the punchline, but it's, it's not simply opium for the masses here. It's not simply that in a, in a, in a, in a world of mess, God's my solid rock, and he absolutely is. But there's something more we need to wrestle with, that the ecclesiastical teacher forces us to face. There's another brutal fact that we must press into if God is going to be the one who provides us meaning. And it comes in verse 13, is God good? Consider what God has done, he says. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? When times are good, be happy. When times are bad, consider this, God has made the one as well as the other, therefore no one can discover anything about their future. What's he saying here? He's saying that we're not in control of our, of our future, and we're certainly not in control of the present, and therefore we don't know what the future holds. But the way he's got there is to say God is sovereign. He's over all of this. And he's sovereign over the mess as well. God has, has made things crooked and he is in control of the good and the bad. He's kind of just opened up a massive Pandora's box here on the problem of evil, and then just keeps moving on. I feel like we need to stop for a moment here. I don't want to turn this sermon into a lecture, but the problem of evil is significant, because if we don't, if we don't think about that for a moment, then it actually affects how we see God as good. How could he let 2020 happen? There's a bunch of philosophical answers to this. It's known as theodicies, a defense of God. Um, some people will say, well, it's, it, these, these suffering moments are about God refining us. You're know, like, okay, we can point to some passage in Scripture that speaks of that, you know, the refiner's fire. That's a good thing. But what I notice, say for instance, even in the schoolyard, is that evil begets evil. A punch is replied with another punch. Evil sometimes brings the worst out in us. Not simply refines us. Or perhaps maybe suffering is a necessary part of God's plan. So God's plan to bring about good and love necessarily involves a contrast that is bad. That is evil. Yeah. Is that going to be a sufficient answer for us to build our life upon? Of why there is suffering? What about maybe that the problem of evil is solved in looking at it being a cost of freedom. Now, this one's got a bit of purchase. We see that in the beginning, God created us in His image uh, uh, with the capacity to respond to His love in loving Him. And He gave us genuine freedom to respond to God. We abuse that freedom and we continue to abuse that freedom and it makes a complete mess of things. That's got some stuff to explore, except what about COVID? What about natural disasters? Each theodicy gives us something to explore in kind of, in the way God might be and how He relates to the world, and yet none of them gift-wrapped the kind of issue of suffering and makes it all nice and neat for us. Maybe that's one of the reasons that the teacher here just sort of, just moves right through. At very least, we could say the world is not as it was intended to be. God created the world good and we've gone off in our own schemes, I want to note here that the atheist doesn't get a clean run here either. So by definition, they have to make the most of this with only the natural resources at hand. And they've got to create meaning, not just discover meaning, not just find meaning. They've got to create meaning from the injustices they have around them. It's a real mess and you've got to make the best of it. It just is, is the naturalist reply. And cobbling together the best of that is deeply dissatisfying. They don't get a clean run here either. But the Ecclesiastes writer, who's got no conclusion really, just opens up a can of worms and keeps moving on, has some kind of, his next move here is strange. We'll come back to the problem even in a sec, but his next move is strange. It's kind of this mediocre solution of moderation. Don't be overly wicked, he says. Uh, Don't be overly righteous. It's hard to imagine that Kohileth, the Hebrew for teacher, is actually... He actually believes this. Maybe he's just making a pragmatic observation. That is, the kind of the righteous still suffer, and the wicked seem to prosper. So maybe kind of hedge your bets a bit here. Don't be overly righteous. Don't put too much, too many eggs in that basket. Don't put too many eggs here. Just kind of go down the middle. Now it's hard to believe that he, he actually believes that with all his heart, because as a righteous Jew, he, he knows from Deuteronomy he's called to love God with his whole heart, mind, and soul, and to love his neighbor as himself. So what's this kind of don't be overly righteous, maybe be a little bit wicked kind of thing? I think he's just making a pragmatic statement that it all seems messed up, so just kind of shoot down the middle. But that answer just doesn't cut it either. What he does offer, as he keeps moving along, is two launch pads that I find quite profound. And we'll have to come back to it in in more detail at the very end, because it's kind of the conclusion of Ecclesiastes. But he says this in verse 18, "'Whoever fears God will avoid all extremes.'" Put everything in perspective when you fear God. What does he mean by that? I think there is a part where he's just genuinely terrified by God. Because God is sovereign, he's in control, he's mysterious and that Kohileth doesn't quite understand how God works. and, And why do the wicked prosper and why aren't the righteous vindicated? I don't quite get it, but he is God. And so there's a bit of genuine terror in kind of how God moves. And at the same time, the biblical category for fearing God is that we might respect God as God and 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 be in awe of Him. You know, the the book of Job in the wisdom category of the Old Testament as well finishes with God's ways are higher than our ways. We can't ultimately stand before God and question him because he is. He was, is, and will be. And who are we to kind of to, to to question him? And the Ecclesiastes teacher will go on to say from verse 20, Indeed, there is no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins. That's the only verse in this book that's quoted in the New Testament from Romans 3. One of the most central kind of passages in Romans about our justification. It begins with the fact that we are not righteous. We are thoroughly broken all the way down. And so when you want to think about fearing God, we are not coming to God all squeaky clean. I've got a kind of list of questions here, God. You need to answer them for me. We, we, are, we are broken. We are sinful and offensive before Him. And He is holy. He is sovereign. And the problem with our brokenness is it makes a mess of Everything. Our glasses are cracked, our hearts are crooked. And there's this fascinating line here, because the whole book here is about the project of pursuing wisdom, finding meaning. He says this in verse 23, "I am determined to be wise, but this was beyond me." There's actually an, a, a kind of a humility here, a recognition that in his brokenness, he could not find what he was pursuing. The whole project was flawed because he is flawed. And so we get the conclusion at the end of the chapter that God created mankind upright, but they have gone in search of many schemes. So why am I still a Christian? This chapter sets up the trajectory, the framework, the concepts to answer this. Because we need to face the brutal facts. We need need to find meaning that the brutal facts won't strip away. We need to know that God is good and that we can build a life on Him. And in humility, we need to posture ourselves before the God who is. Then we might be able to abandon the better life project that we've established with all its parameters and, God, you must do this, this, and this to kind of be right for me, do the compatibility test, we might be able to put that aside and and have the blinkers of our vision torn away that we might discover who God is on His own terms. And that's important, right, because when we're in suffering moments, we tend not to broaden our view but tunnel in, Suffering is one of those things that, that really grabs our whole attention and we burrow into that moment and it becomes overwhelming. What we're doing here tonight is actually before the, in the fear of God coming before Him and, and, and rediscovering who He is. And when I think of discovering, not just creating meaning, but discovering meaning, I think of this, this great little perla, this little parable that I actually taught in my scripture class a couple of weeks ago, uh, where, where Jesus says in Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. And when a man found it, he hid it again, then in his joy went out and sold all he had and bought that field. Friends, I'm inviting you, whether you uh, have been a Christian for a long time or whether you're, you're new and exploring, to put aside all the busyness of your heart and, and, and discover God on His terms. I've been reading Mark's gospel uh, with someone who hasn't read it before and it's just been amazing to see, to sort of, to discover with this person afresh the wonder of Jesus. I mean, he's so unexpected in so many ways. He is incredibly powerful, power to, to heal, power to calm the waves and yet he's also gentle. He is not simply nice, like the nice guy, but he's also good. He's not a king in the classical sense, and he rejects the throne that people want to have him sit on. Uh, Instead, he's a servant, and he's victorious, but his victory is through the cross. Now, many of us know this, and that's a great thing, but we're coming back to, to, to basics that we might discover the goodness of God, because the thing is, and the reason why I'm banging on about discovery here, is there's an epiphany in it. Now, because we can't neatly wrap up the philosophical problem of evil with a nice little neat theodicy, we get to ask another question, and that is, how would God respond to evil? If we take it as a given, how does God actually respond to it? Like, if He was here, what would He be saying about 2020? The thing is, Jesus is God's answer to that. Jesus is God's character on display, God's revelation of himself. And, and how does he respond to evil? Well he paints a picture of the kingdom for us in His words and in His action, so where there is suffering, he relieves. But ultimately, ultimately, how does he respond to the fact that the problem is us and our, our unrighteousness, our sinfulness? Well, we know, he, his, his answer is the cross. The thing here is that the gospel of Jesus is not true because it's relevant to our good life project. But it's relevant to our search for meaning because it's true. Everything begins with the epiphany, with the discovery. Now, Jesus is undoubtedly the reason I'm still a Christian. No surprises there. I'm a pastor. I'm preaching here from the Bible. Jesus is the reason I'm a Christian, But as I've been reflecting on what Ecclesiastes is showing us and my own life in 2020, the, the meat of that answer, the actual meaning, the existential meaning for that for me, the reason why I'm still a Christian in 2020 is because Jesus allows me to face the brutality of this world and he gives me hope. And in those two things, he helps me, and I love this phrase, struggle well. He allows me to to flourish in the desert, as it were, because I'm not playing by the rule book of 2020, but I'm living in it. Now, I know of no other worldview or way to hold together the ability to come to terms with suffering intimately, not just detach from it, uh, and to also press into real hope, because it's totally not okay to gloss over the drama of brokenness, and it's also not okay to say that death is better than life. Jesus allows us to hold those two things in together. And so when we really are having a rough time in the middle of 2020, and I should say that in terms of human experience, 2020 isn't as bad as as what's been on display throughout history, but whenever we're struggling uh, with a particular moment in time, Jesus enables us to acknowledge a few things. First of all, in humility, our own brokenness. I am surprised by how the evil out there brings out the evil in here. In humility, I get to explore that. In the safety of grace, I get to open that up with Jesus. But, but secondly, Jesus helps me understand that this world really is broken, and so I shouldn't be surprised when things go sideways. I am not crushed when 2020 ruins my plans. A little bit, but not ultimately. Ultimately. He allows me to lament and grieve because he's actually acknowledging that this is how it is, but yet it's also not how it ought to be. Because he shows us that in this world there is something better. And it's not just the house of mourning, it's not just frustration. Something better is the kingdom of Jesus. He allows me to be completely and utterly dissatisfied by the brokenness in this world because he has revealed to us something bigger and better and more glorious and more beautiful. And this hope and and the justice and the renewal of all things is on display in Jesus and now we're caught up in that. Now I'll come back to how that plays out in a second. But as we think about how Jesus allows us to, to, uh, to, to own this moment of suffering, not just flee from it, but also to, to, to kind of hold out real hope, to hold those th- two things in tension that we might struggle well. Let's think about what happens if you don't hold those two things in tension. Like if your life is just about living in the moment, there's no meta kind of story, there's no real hope, it's just about living in the moment, then what do you say in 2020? What have you got? Or likewise, if your Christian view uh, doesn't actually have much to say about the suffering moment it is all about free tickets to heaven, then what do you do to take another step forward in 2020? Jesus gives us the ability to hold both intention, and it's beautiful. It's hard. And as we think about the people in the room here, the community, the fellowship that we have, we're all kind of wrestling with that tension in different ways. So some of us are actually just overflowing with joy right now, like life is good and kind of, or they've found joy in their suffering even because they know Jesus is with them. Other people are really struggling with this suffering moment and are looking for kind of to press into more hope, but that's the privilege of sharing stories by being real with each other because we can be real with God and real with each other and we get to actually play this out, this tension together. One of the things that's helped me to persevere well, to, to struggle well, is to, to go back to some biographies. I'm, I'm not, I'm, this is a new sort of thing for me, and as I was asking some people around me what's, what's some good stories I could be reading uh, about how how God's people have, have led through crisis, led through challenges, I got recommended this old book, and it's, and it's old, like it's, you know, it's not something that, it's just, it's old, like it even smells old, and it's, it's, it's not even on Kindle, but it's called Less the Innocent blood be shed. And it's the story of, um, it's a biographical account of André Tocmé, who is a pastor in Le Chambon, harboring Jews in Nazi-occupied France. Now, if you want to think about suffering, 2020 is weak compared to what, what this guy endured. But what struck me is that here is a pastor who knew everyone in his town and brought life to it with the Word of God. And, and, when, and when things went down, when, kind of, when the Nazis occupied France, what happened then was that the, the vision he was living out, the hope that he was living out, differed radically to what he was seeing around him. And what that meant for him is that he pressed into that hope, which also meant he would be pressing into suffering, because the result of him harboring Jews was he ended up in a concentration camp. And there's one particular story that stood out to me, is that the guards reflecting on kind of the usual somber, despairing tones of prisoners in a concentration camp. And yet one night, the night that Andre and a few other pastors and people from the church end up in this concentration camp, all of a sudden there is singing. (laughs) There is singing in this place of despair. Why? Well, not out of some weird detachment of some kind of exercising of grand illusions. No, because... They brought the hope of Jesus into the mess because that's how Jesus entered the mess, to give us hope and to show us hope. What does it look like to be people of hope in this suffering moment? That's what it means to struggle well. Jesus lets us be really honest with our struggle, and yet he shows us something bigger. Now, if you're not a believer here tonight, I'm so glad you're here. I'd love to hear your thoughts on kind of, and what you're seeing from this passage and what you're seeing in the world and what God might have to offer. My hope is that you find solid ground, that you get to explore God and discover, find that epiphany on who Jesus is to you. But I also want you to know that the, the, the writer of Ecclesiastes, the teacher here, he is pretty honest to say that despite all the resources at hand, his good life project was flawed you will not find the answers you're looking for in this world. And God hasn't just given you a philosophical answer to the dramas of 2020 in this world. He's given you His Son because you are more sinful and more glorious than you could possibly imagine. And that's a truth for all of us. If you're despairing, I want you to kind of think about a couple of things. At what point did God stop being the God you hoped He would be? that's a big question. If you're really struggling, at what point did this kind of year just kind of tank for you and and where did the goodness of God stop flowing perhaps? How has God responded to what you're struggling with? Keep your Bibles open, let Him talk to you. Who is around you in this kind of tension of, of kind of suffering and hope? Who is around you in that different spectrums that can speak into your life? And what sins have emerged in your own reaction to the problems of this world? David Powelson says, hammered by some evil, we discover the evils in our own hearts. If you're doing okay, that's great. Give thanks to God. Let the overflow of that joy speak into the lives of those around you. May the kingdom of Jesus be known in the places you're in. Why am I still a believer in 2020? Because Jesus is with me in every struggle. He resources me by his Holy Spirit. And he's doing more in me than I could possibly imagine on my own terms. He's taken me outside of my good life project and shown me something else. And and Paul speaks to this in Romans 5 when he says, we also glory in our sufferings. What kind of weird statement is that? We glory in our sufferings. He expands because we know that suffering produces perseverance, struggling well, and perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. God is good to me in Jesus. I hope you can say the same even in the midst of 2020. As I finish, let me quote Spurgeon here, who I just think sums up a whole bunch of stuff. He writes, or says, God is too good to be unkind. And we know that because we see Jesus on display showing what God is like in the middle of this mess. God is too good to be unkind. He is too wise to be mistaken. So listen to him. But when you cannot trace his hand, when you can't make sense of why something happened, we must trust his heart. When you can't trace his hand, we must trust his heart. Why are you still a believer in 2020?